0: Welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French School, l'École Nationale de lutri, Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales, not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Welcome back to the story of Giovanni Paolo Maggini. In the first episode about this maker, I have briefly covered his life story. We don't know all that much about this maker during his lifetime, but his influence and style is definitely long-lived, and the sheer number of copies of his instruments that have been made in the intervening 400 years is simply staggering. And so in this episode, I will be talking to two experts about why and how Magini instruments were and are such hot stuff. To begin with, in these conversations, the mention of the Hills book comes up quite a lot. Let me quickly explain why. W.E. Hills and Sons, if you don't know, was one of the great English violin workshops in London, only to be rivalled by J and A beers, a bit like what Batman is to Superman. Big players. Did you <laughs> Did you know, by the way, that Bruce Wayne, Batman's alter ego, is actually the owner of the Daily Planet newspaper who employs Clark Kent, making Batman technically Superman's boss? I find this fascinating because this is kind of what happens in the story of the Beers and Hills companies. But I digress. The Hills Workshop was founded by William Ebsworth Hill, 1871 to 1895. He was the son, grandson and great-grandson of violin makers. But when he founded W.E. Hills and Sons, he really took things to the next level. The man's energy was boundless. Under William's direction was the company's workshop, of course, that was producing new instruments and bow makers making bows. They would also deal in older instruments and were well known for their quality restorations. They had a line of accessories as the workshop continued to be run by his sons and these included rosins, cleaning polish, chin rests, shoulder rests, bridges, instrument cases, strings, little tuning pipes, peg paste if your pegs got stuck, The pegs themselves, music stands, and the list goes on. Whatever product pertaining to the violin you could possibly think of, the Hills made sure there was a Hills version of it. If this sounds like a handful, then hold on to your seats, because not only was W.E. Hill a violin maker and musician, he was also interested in photography and astronomy. And let's not forget his family, because it is Hill and Sons. So he obviously had children. Nine, in fact. Somewhere along the line. But to really prove oneself as an authority in the field, what better way to do it than to write a book? And to make a splash, the first one was on the wonderful Brescian maker Gio Paolo Maggini, published in 1892. And this is the book that we often refer to as the Hills Book in our discussions about Maggini. To make this book, research was made from archives... And really to date, this book still stands as one of the only works documenting exclusively the life and work of this maker. Even though research has continued over the years, this is still a book makers keep coming back to. And so now you know a bit about The Hills Book, or more precisely, it's called The Life and Work of Paolo Maggini, the author of which is a woman named Margaret Higgins, who is fascinating in her own right. I spoke to Florian Leonard, who is a London-based violin maker, dealer restorer, expert and owner of Florian Leonard fine violins. We spoke about Brescia, the city Magini lived and worked in.:
1: Brescia was a, was a city that uh, had a very rich musical life. It was a completely devastated city by the invasion of, was it the French? French yeah the French. And, uh, sorry about the French but uh, yes they so they invaded uh, um, and ransacked the city completely and then the Venetians took it back got, took control over it and then there was another battle it was ransacked again and you know it was really really destroyed and but pressure didn't benefit from a big rich duke that that would mm. kind of um, control the cultural life of the city unlike most mm. other big cities like Milan and a big guy of Florence and Rome and but even Venice had a, a lot of uh, people wealthy people who who kind of had demands um, on their cultural life um, and brescia interestingly had a, a, a big probably middle class intellectually interested that furthered music making in a big way, and particularly instrumental music making or opera, that is not just singers and so on, but had lots of different musical instruments. And these expression makers during Gasparo da Salo's time, particularly in his earlier time, um, were sit makers, they were uh, they made uh, the plugged instruments uh, as well. So they were busy doing those things as well and uh, that's also what they were called very often sitarayo c- and so on
0: oh so the wait where you get like uh l- lutei today it would be would have been sitarayo
1: yeah was not yet yes exactly it was, they would
2: say it's for citario. an instrument maker A cita- oh, okay
1: yeah or maestro maker or something like this you know uh master violin okay. ma- yeah but actually you had in brescia you had Already the word violin for violin maker. Um, and mm. Gasparadas a lost time. On before, it's at the Pellegrino, Sanetto's, uh, Michele's uh, family time. You already had the, the, the term violin, violino or violini mm. maker. But we don't know exactly what that thing looked like, whether that was actually the violin, because, you know, something... That looked a bit uh, better than a rebeck and different to a bu- to a vial. Maybe yeah. was called that. Oh, be...
0: Kind of on the way.
1: It's to... <laughs> on the way. Yeah.
2: I'm Ben Hebert. I've uh, got a workshop in Oxford. Occasionally, I sell violins, and I do a lot of writing about them, and a lot of research, and a little bit of expertise as well.
0: Okay. And where where can we find your um where can we find your
2: writings? My writings. I've got uh, violin violinists.com mm-hmm. is my blog and uh, it's sort of everywhere else occasionally in the Strad magazine and things like that chapters of books things
0: nuggets of wisdom Good.
2: something like that
0: um page fillers <laughs> All right, so today I wanted to talk about uh, Magini. Actually, i did have a I did have a thought uh, about uh, the difference between Cremonese and Brescian instruments, and that was uh, uh, we looked at. Um, you, you said how uh, was it Virgil that went to school in Cremona? In
2: Cremona, and yeah.
0: Cremona was well known for its schools, and it had a very um, educated uh merchant class and i was wondering if if it wasn't for their education level in cremona and the fact that an artisan like amati could have a renaissance education would the violin have the shape that it does today if it wasn't for school
2: Oh, yes and no uh I think is the answer. When we look at when we look at Amati, we're looking at something which is architecturally wonderful, and it works. But if you go backwards in time, so there's some amazing frescoes in Ferrara by a guy called Gaudenzio of Ferrara, and uh, they show musical instruments, bowed instruments of every single you know imaginable shape, and uh, including some things which may actually be purposefully wrong uh because they're being held by angels but uh within those there's one or two instruments which are violin like and at the end of the day what you know what is a violin shape well it's it's the biggest it's the biggest amount of surface area and volume in order to make a good sound and yet at the point where the bow crosses the strings it's got to be narrow enough that that uh, the, the, the bow can touch each of the strings individually without you know having a bit of a road crash. So the violin as we know it, you know might have appeared around 1500. There could well be instruments which are even older than that which are quite like the violin. In fact, 14th 5th, uh, 13th century uh, precursor of the violin tend to have a sort of jelly bean kind of shape to them. Again, with this narrowing at that point, so the sh- the shape is in the ether one way or another. But just the shape, in terms of you know what a what an instrument has to be. But I think you know one of the things that a that an architect can do, whether we're talking about a violin or or a shed, is you know there's a there's a whole difference between sort of sticking some sticks in the ground and sticking a roof on it, and architecturally designing a shed. And I think that's kind of where someone like Amati comes in. He says, with all of this Renaissance knowledge that I've got, this thing is already working. It's already a perfectly good thing for doing what it does. But I'm going to, understanding the necessities of it, the the string length to get the pitch, the, 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 the volume of it in order to get the sort of sound, the narrowness and all of this, I'm going to make a beautiful architectural version of what already exists.
0: Yeah, because otherwise it would look like the the Brescian. I mean, I'm thinking of the difference between the Brescian violin and the Cremonese violin.
2: Yeah, I think uh I mean the Brescians aren't without a geometry of their own. Mm. And that's very clear. But I think I think they're using sort of slightly sophisticated, you know, further thoughts. And, you know, rather than just, you know, again, we can take this analogy and, you know, the the Brescians have got a number of geometrical rules which will work in order to render the thing workable. But the Cremonese, they're taking it to this further level of perfection. And we see that, you know, by the 1630s, we've got Galileo who's writing to... Uh, Father Micanzio Fulgnensis, or whatever his name is, who's, who's writing to Monteverdi, who's writing to his unknown Cremonese makers, who must be Amati. And we're hearing about Amati's being worth about four times what a Brescian instrument is worth. And obviously, you know, they're, they're having to do something to justify the, the, the premiums that they're able to charge.
1: You know, like anything you do in life, everything is quite complex. And the deeper you look, the less simple you can just uh, make the story. So Andrea Marti, for me, of course, is a giant, um, because he has, unlike the pressure makers, created a design that could be replicated for centuries, more or less unchanged incredibly well conceived um, with Renaissance principles and um, uh, in a Baroque shape, if you want. So construction method, golden section. He has uh, uh, um, also construction sequence that was maybe derived from the loot makers, from, from Füssen who came um, in droves to to Italy because Italy had a great big market um, of interest in music making. But to cut away from now, the Amati in Cremona coming to to Brescia, uh, which is your topic about Gasparo da Salò, if I understood right. Um, that of course is for me the hero of the city. <laughs> pressure because he has created uh Margini, if you want. Uh, coming to your question why why you feel that Margini in some ways might overshadow in fame even Andrea Marti and Gaspar da Salo might be due to the fact that one he made many more violins than Gaspar da Salo. And the violas always a little bit the, the suffering um, joked about instrument in the orchestras in our classical music world. So the violas were less important in some ways and less uh, uh, less easy to, to talk about in big numbers. So um, Marcini made many more violins and violas, while Gaspar da Salo made very few violins and many more violas. But Magini continued in the footsteps of Gasparo da Salo, and he seamlessly continued the tradition of working and the method. But coming back to the fame, why you feel he's more known, there's another fact. So already in the early 1600s, early 17th century in Brescia, Maggini was immediately written about as the great maestro mm. violin maker. When he died uh, around about 1730-31-32 during the plague, he had already achieved considerable fame, and people started shortly after already even naming themselves as pupil of Maggini, even if it wasn't necessarily true, Right. Okay. who write, wrote, wrote about the music uh, culture at the time. And um, that is actually also an interesting thing, which made Pressure uh, so famous. And because, you know, when I was a child, I grew up also with thinking, oh, my genius, the inventor of the filing, uh, which is obviously, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, uh, because obviously we know that Andrea Marti is before, and Gaspar da Salo in some ways is before. Even though maybe yes, arguably uh, Gaspar da Salo came more from the viol making, viola making, bass instrument kind of making, and you had a more sonorous, warm, uh, earthy kind of sound idea at the time. But also maybe possibly because mm. instruments didn't sound much differently, because it maybe didn't have in those archaic instruments, sound posts, etc. That was one thing that he was already written about, so people could read now about Maggini and the importance of the maestro violin maker. And Maggini uh, was also prolific in the production of the instruments and had La Franchini as well, who who already worked for Gaspar da Salò as his assistant. Then we had the 19th century, eventually, Couple of hundred years later and that's I think is the probably the biggest source of why we create where we created a lot of romantic things because the 19th century was the romantic era in the art history in music making in, in, in painting and in sculptures and architecture so it was the time where where castles were rebuilt but wrongly rebuilt. Mm, the,
0: the, the Follies? Yes,
1: because they created some romantic mi- middle, middle-aged-like looking castle, which didn't actually look like that when it was first built. So they, they had this romanticized idea. And, you know, Mancini, unlike Amati and everything that followed, because everybody admired Stradivari and Amati and Guarneri and Rogeri, etc., So. Margini and Salona alone and were a bit forgotten because they looked so archaic, they looked uh, ancient, they looked primitive and simple in their making. And so in that romantic time, I think, I mean, this is only my interpretation, but I look at people like Villon, who now created Marginis, and he made lots of Marginis, and he had this interesting idea about that extra turn on on the scroll, in the volume of the scroll, um, to create this as I'm, a Magini thing which differs to all other violins that that were mm. kind of oh, so was, produced by
0: Was VM oh sorry. Was v- I'm the one to add the extra?
1: No, there yeah. are some be, there are a few marginis that have that extra turn because uh, that that's uh, so, but maybe okay. we we'll talk later about stylistics but um,
0: uh, yeah that must have been his model that he he,
1: he picked up on that, that model yeah he must have seen mm, one okay. scroll that that exists mm. by margini and maybe it wasn't magini who made it it was maybe la Franchini or another assistant mm.
0: So we see later makers working in Paris, such as Villaume, who lived in the 19th century, copying Magini in a romantic style, perhaps drawn in by this unusual looking model that really didn't resemble anything like the classical Cremonese instruments people were used to. Benjamin Hebert.
2: There were people like de Berrio, one of the great early 19th century players who had a Magini, Ole Bull had a Magini and those those start to get copied uh, actually it's Gunn Ber- uh, Bernadel in Paris Nicolas Francois Viome in Brussels really sort of start the way in copying and then you get the German cheap cheaper copies which always seem to come from those Viomes and those Bernadels
0: now we see things orbiting around Parisian musicians and violin makers, who at this time were the influences of the 19th century on these things. Florian Leonard.
1: But I have still haven't um, uh, finished your your initial question, because there's another <laughs> Back aspect. Back to the
0: question, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's
1: another aspect to, to Margini. So once Villaume created, picked up on this archaic-looking instrument to make a um, Another romantic-looking uh, thing, because he he also he also had a uh, um, you know. So he they liked those sudden ancient-looking instruments with heads and different heads and different f holes. But of course, Viom didn't understand Magini at all because he built it with an outside mold. He built it very square and in you know more what what they learned in violin making at the time, and also like all violin makers in the 19th century, they no longer constructed with, with from within, they drew around things and copied them, and kind of idealized it, but didn't really build what, what was the, the real um, intention of the maker at the time. And so he now created the Magini model next to his Guarneri model, next to the Amati model, next to a Guarneri del Gesù model. So it became one of the five models. So the whole world now knows Magini, Amati, Stradivari, Guarneri. But uh, so people had now those models and Magini became one of them. And therefore from the Brescian makers, he became the archaic, the oldest and most ancient looking one. So it became interesting. And then the Hills in 1892 wrote their famous book on Magini which again is also, the Hills did an enormous job in doing research, quite good research. And they found also in that book, you, you find lots of beautiful evidence and uh, links of, of, uh, of people who ordered instruments from them in that rich life.
0: Um, have you in the hills book where it has mm-hmm. sort of a a guide to faking a magini almost it um it uh it tells you how to make a fake magini <laughs> um well it talks about maginifying instruments
2: i got my 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 copy right here 57 or so 56 57 there's a whole load of Uh, pointers for connoisseurs. A very successful Magini copy was made by Bernard Fent, Jr. Naturally, the first necessity for the Magini forger was to obtain suitable violins on which to operate and consequently all violins of large dimensions and antique appearance were sought out and their fitness for adaptation thoughtfully considered. Two lines of purfling were a sin qua non, and as but few violins possessed this feature, it had to be added. French violins of the Bocquet-Pierre period, 1700-1740, English ones of the Raymond Urquhart period, 1630-1700, and German violins of all periods were easily maginified as regards purfling and the elongation of the sound holes. When the violin, to be adapted, was sufficiently large and of suitable model, the inner line of purfling was inserted. When of smaller size or unsuitable in form, the original edge and purfling were removed and a new rim of wood about three-quarters of an inch three-quarters? Three-eighths of an inch in width added all around, which was joined to the old part by an underlapping joint. This new edge was then slightly hollowed and purfled. The groove for the inner line of purfling being made over the joining of the old and new wood effectually hid it. Clover leaves were inserted in the top and bottom of the back and the central device of Magini at the middle of the back. The scroll was also worked on, but here the peculiarities of Magini were not mastered and the scroll was invariably turned too far.
0: Yeah, so it tells you how you can forge uh, (laughs) it. I like how they give you... like. Uh, just the tips
2: just just a bit too much isn't it (laughs) yeah
0: and like and how they say like in every german violin because you know how the german those german trade instruments are often big so yeah okay
2: (laughs) yeah i mean the magini books written at exactly the same time that people are sort of getting into their sherlock holmes and stuff like that so Mm. there is an element of it of uh sort of giving giving the hills, you know, the voice of the expert. Yeah. It's 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 quite a good point to uh, you know, give give away all, all of the secrets because actually you don't often see Maginis or Majini fakes. So they, they can say everything about expertise and it won't it won't really affect their bottom line.
0: Returning to Brescia and the Brescian style, Florian Leona talks about Maggini's assistant La Franchini and the style of Maggini's scrolls compared to the work that was being done at the same time in Cremona and the different construction techniques that the two schools of violin making used.
1: Because La Francine in particular, he was, as far as I remember, he was a carver and uh, furniture maker um, who also um, supplied... The, or restored the local church furniture, or you know, whatever there is. And if you look at the scroll, the scroll is made like this furniture. So it has a kind of leaf mm-hmm. um, structure that goes around. When you look at the scroll from the front, it's wide and it's all tapered back, the peg box as well, and everything. It's a completely different idea to the idea, there's not a chamfer structure on the scroll, it's a kind of like a leaf with a fine edge that kind of rounded off over the past 400 years into something like a chamfer, but uh, it was kind of not thought to be like Amati, very clearly from day one, he constructed a spiral out of mathematical proportions, and then had to solve the problem how to end with the volute carving out in the eye. So you have a channel, which is the the carved out channel part of the volute, but you have to end somewhere in the spiral. And so that end is quite a complicated thing for young violin makers, they don't know how to do that. Do you have a gouge that kind of fits into there? and meets the other gouge in a point, or how do you construct the point? Maybe with a knife cut, but you need to kind of arrive in a parallel
0: line. the perfect gouge with the perfect curve. I remember at, um, yeah. I went to Mirko and everyone's like, I found it. I
1: found you the You see, gouge. there we go. You understand. <laughs> other people
0: there <laughs> with a knife.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you understand. So so the, the Brescian didn't bother about this. So they just had a piece of paper that spiraled up into something and then you had an eye. And it's all undercut because the undercut gives a certain lightness to the design of that paper flow. That's like, like you know, the role of something. And the eye, uh, because you didn't have a sh- much of a chamfer, could just end some time whenever the gouts finished in their turn, in a point. And uh, that is each time different. But the principle is similar. But they were not trying to replicate like industry. The Kromanese created a system that is absolutely, until today, there to be replicated. Of course in the 19th century it was no longer constructed like in the in the in the 17th century or 16th. 16th and 17th century in Cremona was clearly only constructed with dividers, calipers, proportions and therefore you had the inside mould, you build everything around it and so on. The Depression didn't have that idea, they had a free a free architecture. They had the back, they stuck the corner blocks on it, And they put very thick ribs around it, starting with the sea bouts, then meeting with miters, relatively blunt miters on the corners, open sea bouts. Sea bouts are quite um, open seas because that's much easier to to bend because these very thick ribs, when you see an original that hasn't been re-graduated and hasn't had uh, linings fitted later um, by, by people in the 19th century who want to do better those instruments. Um, then you actually see that you had those thick ribs and you know to make these middle uh, very small ra- radiuses uh, on a, on the a violin or a viola is quite tough to bend without breaking it and so that they, they kept it quite blunt and therefore the corners are not very long unlike Sanetto de Pellegrino before had its long corners but also in Armati's time of course they had long corners and that was a feature of the instrument the corner While in Brescia, it was kind of an archaic uh, thing that came from the vial.
0: Uh, and the Hills book on um, Magini, I like it. I feel like it's really, it's very well done. It's like you've got the the biography and then you have these, like, these tips on how to make your own Magini. Uh, Then then it has a few anecdotes that are a little bit indiscreet as she, like, they name the clients uh, involved.
2: And yes, the, the FENT copy which was made as an honest honest copy, but it was bought by someone whose widow was then hard up and tried to do it.
0: And in the end you have in the at the end you have the uh the, the body, the measurements, uh the table of measurements that has um which is sort of a little bit confounding because the violins it it does like pre strad it compares like a a pre nineteen, a pre sixteen ninety Strad, a long strad and a magini. And then for violas, they totally change to um a de Salo and then an Amati and an a um, Magini, they're comparing. And then they go back to a Strad for the cello. Which is like, ah, it's confusing. And then they have all the little the little notes and the explanation. I find it's quite um know it's all in there and then it even has a thing on how to find Magini's house at the end uh and it's um we were talking about the woman who wrote it margaret huggins and she's interesting because she's like she's a real fan you can tell as you're reading it like she's a real fan of the hills and i find it interesting that they they asked her to write their book
2: so yes she marries uh guy called William Huggins and he's an astronomer and but the fascinating thing is that she really seems to be the person who's into photography. Mm. So in terms of being able to record what he sees, it's her. And she becomes a pioneer in the eighteen seventies of spectral astrophotography. Which, yeah, uh, spe-
0: spec 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 spextro- I can't say it. Spec spec Spectroscopy.
2: She becomes really good at pronouncing it, anyway. Whichever one it is.
0: That's taking. Is that? Was she actually taking photos of light, like sort of rainbows type thing? Like you know, when you see a rainbow with the light, was that?
2: I suspect so.
0: Okay. I'll have to check that
2: out. I think there's a whole load of stuff which is going on about with before, uh, colour. F- photography, actually, there's a lot of understanding of which light waves the, the camera works best at, hmm. or sorry, not not the camera, but the process. Hmm. I can say. Actually, if we look at a lot of photographs of the time and compare them to ultraviolet or infrared photography, we actually see, you know, violin photographs, they're all opaque because, you know, what, what's a perfectly good spectrum for a black and white photograph of a person? Is actually a little bit on the ultraviolet spectrum, so we're not able to see the wood underneath the varnish.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah! And then um, in this in this book, there's amazing painting.
2: Yeah, because um, when... well, not you. You say the paintings are amazing, and and you're welcome to. You're absolutely right. It's we so can go on to those.
0: It <laughs> is so hard to draw a violin. I am just really, um, you know. Uh, admirable of anyone who can do a painting of a violin
2: but to to me it's it's the photographs which are absolutely you know before i knew who margaret huggins was seeing these photographs which are absolutely to scale really done with precision and then comparing them to other early early violin photographs and uh and they're just astonishing and I think that we might be seeing, you know, the same, the same eye and the same photographic skill on those, as you know, the inventor of spec of, of spex, stuff that we can't trope, trope, that, 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 that that one, <laughs> which is really really important.
0: Margaret Huggins was a pretty amazing woman. Born in Dublin in 1848, she was an accomplished astronomer and spectroscopist who made significant contributions to the fields of astrophysics. She was also a very talented photographer, artist and musician. In 1873, when she was 25 years old, she attended a lecture by a Mr. William Huggins, a prominent astronomer and spectroscopist on his research on stellar spectra. that's a tongue twister margaret who was already captivated by astronomy and spectroscopy was deeply impressed by william's lecture and sought an introduction to him after the lecture her uncle who was acquainted with william huggins organized a meeting between the two and the spectral sparks were ignited in 1875 two years later they married and together they conducted groundbreaking research in spectroscopy (laughs) which is the study of the interaction between light and matter. It was a marriage of intellect and the heart. I find it really hard to say spectroscopy. Spectroscopy. Anyway, in addition to her scientific contributions, Margaret actively participated in astronomical societies and institutions, which is kind of extraordinary for a woman at the time. She was a member of the Royal Astronomical Society and the British Astronomical Association, She was also involved in promoting women's involvement in science and was a member of the British Federation of University Women. Margaret received recognition for her work throughout her career, and she was the first woman to receive the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1903, which was a remarkable achievement at the time. She also received honorary degrees from the University of Dublin and the University of St. Andrews, when this was still a tricky time for a woman to attend university. As to how she came to write the Magini book for the Hills, apart from being one smart cookie, her husband, William Huggins, was an avid amateur violinist and was friends with the inventive and nimble-minded William Ebsworth Hill. William Huggins also possessed a golden period Stradivari so this could have helped the connection. This violin is now called the Huggins Strad. Today, it's lent to the winner of the Belgian Queen Elizabeth Violin Competition. Because Margaret was also a very talented photographer, she helped in the production of the images of not only the Magini book, but also others the Hill Workshop produced. Today, she's only really remembered for her scientific endeavours, but here I'd like to give a little shout-out to her and her work on Magini. You go, girl. Florian Leonard.
1: So, the Hill book was another book that put him on the map, Magini. And the Hills also idealized him a little bit by saying by he was the kind of establisher of the violin.
0: Do you think the Hills book is still. Um, the reference book. Yeah, today is it still what they say um valid?
1: Um the the facts the facts of the book are still valid because they they did proper research in Brescia. And so they 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 looked at sources, they they found um this uh, this lady um
0: Oh, are you talking about Isabella?
1: Isabella. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, the Gonzaga. Okay. So I thought you were talking about, and like, Lisa, modern. Okay, there's the, the, the Gonzaga. Gonzaga court. Yes. Yep. That's the one. Yep. Yes. And so she was, of course, a patron of the arts in that sense. Mm. Yeah, And so people like her furthered this. And her demands were fulfilled by Brescia. And that's another interesting thing. Why did Brescia yeah. live so confidently next to Cremona, where Amati, of course, made instruments also for a big society throughout Europe? He became also famous, but they lived side by side, not influencing each other, um, not that I can see that. And um, and you can see that, not, not rethinking, oh, maybe they are doing something better than us. Let's change a little bit the style. No, Margini confidently continued the style of Russia. Only at the very end of Margini's life and career, you can see a little bit of proportioning the scroll getting a little bit um, more carefully made, and not quite so large and heavy, whether that is influenced from, and also linings are used suddenly, whether that's the influence from Cremona, or whether that's demand for musicians that have seen a Cremonese instrument, or whether that is an evolutionary thing that just happened because those instruments had a relatively fast evolution in, in Brescia. Because the, from the very primitive uh, instruments, suddenly you uh, have the Michaeli family, and you other makers. And then Gasparo da Salo was the, the big genius in many ways, because he he transformed a lot and established things, and he became very successful. That he became uh, wealthy as a ma- instrument maker, and he could afford to have several employees and different uh, premises to own. So that's that's quite an achievement as an instrument maker of the day, yeah. So I think the book of Hills helped Magini's name as well, and then the mystery of the earliest violin maker was, of course, in the in the ears of all the laymen in the in about the topic, particularly if, if Hills also kind of. Uh, supported this uh, model of, of that Magini is the earliest uh, violin maker or creed of a violin.
0: Well it's interesting because they don't actually say that. And in the, um, in the Magini book it, in the front, I have um, you might have like one of the first editions, there's a paper that says you know we've got all this information about Gasparo de Salo. Yeah. So they they knew that about Gasparo de Salo, but they brought out the Magini book first. Yeah, and the damage was done.
1: <laughs> I think the damage was done, and then they didn't want to pedal back too much. But I, but they did say in that book, I remember that they they said that he is the person who established the violin, mm. the modern violin.
0: Oh yeah, so you have Gasparo. They don't sort of say like...
1: it's the inventor directly, but they said that, I think they said that right. established. But I right. I think out of that established, probably interpretations came and the people then made out of it, he invented mm. Yeah, because you jump quickly from established to invent.
0: Yeah, you can imagine someone reading it and then telling a friend, oh, you know, I read this book about the guy yeah. who invented the violin.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, I would say in 1732, the uh, Brescian violin making or violin making was dead for a bit. So, until the arrival of G.B. Rogerry, who came with a completely Cremonese idea they into town and then adopted features of Maggini and Gaspar da Salo, I cannot say who, probably some Maggini violins that would have been more uh, in numbers available to him, have influenced his design of creating an arching. It's It's interesting that he. Instantly picked up on that arching, because ro- rogeris are always much fuller arched. The the arching rises much earlier from the purfling up.
0: Right. So he came from the tra- Cremonese tradition, but he adopted the like the Breton arching idea. He
1: he came from nicolo Marti, and has learned all the finesse of uh, construction fine making, discipline, and also series production. He had an inside mold, and he had the linings, and he had the, all the blocks, including top and bottom block, um, and he nailed in the neck. So he did a complete uh, package of Cremonese violin making, and, it, and brought that into pressure, mm-hmm. but blended it in certain stylistics, and sometimes even in copies uh, with the Brescia style. Mm-hmm. for a long time we have had before dendrochronology was established the, the maginis uh, going around and they were actually g b raw
0: right yeah we did a um we did a condition report on a um magini and um it had an old certificate and and then we did the dendrochronology, and so I had to change the title to attributed to. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it might have been. You know, I mean, I have I've seen. So it could have been a about Three, three Rogeries that used to be, a genius. Okay. Yeah, very nicely made, um, but you can see that the construction behind it doesn't have that more loose idea of creating that shape, mm-hmm. but it was a constructed shape.
0: Okay, so how how is Magini different to Dasalo, and why do you think uh, Magini is so much uh, better known than? de Salo or am I just making assumptions I feel like a lot of people know if you say a Brescian instrument they'll be like oh yeah Magini Benjamin Hebert
2: well I think Gaspar de Salo instruments are much rarer than we sort of take credit for and uh, and actually you know they're also I think when we look at Magini's well there's actually two problems with Magini's because there are the spectacular Magini's and throughout his, throughout history until dendrochronology, that's, uh, tree ring dating came along. We, you know, we, we saw these instruments, which were really quite one, you know, really quite wonderful, almost cremenese in, uh, in, in their quality, which we kind of thought of as, you know, the, the, the best maginis, but then what we discovered and there's quite a lot of those and quite a lot of those have become the very famous maginis but actually then dendrochronology comes along and given that magini died in 1630 when these were coming up with dendros of 1670 1680 1700 uh we you know suddenly began to realize that these aren't by magini at all but they're by somebody 60 70 years on and uh so you know stuff like the the the, Do, the Prince Doria, uh, Maginis, which are you know a very famous quartet. Uh, they're not by Magini. Are
0: they the Are they the painted? They've got that herald on the back. Is that yeah?
2: They're painted. Yeah. So painted for Prince Doria in the nineteenth century, but uh, but they're actually you know they're not. They're not even Maginis at all. So you've got all of this stuff by Giovanni Battista Rogeri, who's a contemporary of Stradivari, making Magini fakes, which we still, you know, are associating with Magini. Then you've got the real Maginis, which are a little less refined. Then you've got the period where Magini and DeSalo are working together, Magini and DeSalo's workshop. And those are a little less refined again, and then you've got the true Gaspar de Salos, which are, you know, a, a small number and and actually quite rough. <laughs> and then the problem is, is that you know I think so much stuff, you know, it's more likely that a Magini will get reappraised into a Magini Gaspar de Salo collaboration than a Gaspar de Salo coming into that so essentially there's three different kinds of maginis and very little unless you're into double basses from Gaspar de salo
0: so uh so one of my questions was in the was actually in the hills book uh i don't know if it's her it's a bit ambiguous when you're reading it i'm like is it is it the Hills talking or is it her talking um, about, um, well, she she actually has a funny story where she talks about clients and she actually names the client. Um, yeah. It's, I love these old books where they're just like, I know. you know, Mrs. So-and-so.
1: Politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, Actually, when you read the Hill book, it's kind of scolding everyone, you know. <laughs> so
0: they give their own opinion.
1: It fitted a bad baseball.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, the, and she'll be like, yeah, Mrs. So-and-so came in, it was clearly a fake, and then she sold it as a real one, and then that guy came back, and I had to tell him it was a fake. And... Yeah. <laughs> but she says, uh, so she talks about, uh, or no, or the Hills, who knows, about um, Magin, uh, Strad, their idea that Strad was influenced in his long mm-hmm. period of mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. by Magini. Yeah. What, what are your do you think that's a relevant observation florian leonard
1: what do you think i would answer to that <laughs> i say very clearly hundred percent hundred percent no doubt okay so you know the Brescia was plotting along with their style on their own and uh creating something that yeah, they just were confident because the musicians wanted to have those instruments. They were busy. They got rich from it. You know, nobody was poor making those instruments, and they, which we can see in the archives uh, today. So you can you can see that they were successful. They had constantly musicians from all over the country to consult them because the musicians were the ones driving what was in demand. You know, in parallel in the parallel universe Cremona supplied some other chords with their instruments and they were successful within that and that system worked very well. But I don't see much cross-pollination there going on between those cities. So Cremona will have noticed that musicians like sometimes to have this kind of Magini-like instruments. And Rogeri was already making such instruments as well, maybe visible for Cremonis, violin makers because they the musicians would travel because pressure and Cremona is not that far apart. But obviously the the link wasn't so established culturally as you can tell from the violin making history. So but Stradivari, um, who totally deserves his name as the genius of of our profession. He was constantly from day one, from the earliest instruments, when we analyzed them, you can see from the earliest instruments his strong character and drive to find out how to make it better. So I think from day one, he tried to see how can I improve this thing. And by 1690, he arrived by saying, let's radically change the design of the arching, because because the musicians talking about the sonority and warmth and depth of uh, Martini instruments and so he he felt that's lacking let's try to find this out and then he saw something and he said let's try it and he did it and it created some effect and he continued this and so he did it for for just under a decade building those long pattern instruments because long Magini's were longer and um, they were fuller arched and you see that in in Stradivari's design. But Stradivari still was bound by the very strong incredible principles that the Amati's have created in Cremona. So he had the discipline to build it beautifully with long slender corners with choice of wood that looks uh, magnificent and it's very it's aristocratic in the way. So the Magini model by Stradivari doesn't look like a Magini. You know? so, so it's a much more graceful uh, in design, in my view. He combined in the, in the golden period the two things. So his arching became fuller, which is the major change in Stradivari's design for the sound. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's less of that. Um, there's the scooped, like towards the edges, it's less.
1: There. although yes, I mean
0: the Amati brothers. I, I don't, yeah.
1: The brothers Amati were already quite full, yeah. Yes, uh,
0: there's a view. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's hard to tell.
1: Since you mentioned the Amati brothers, the Amati brothers were more advanced in the arching from our modern perspective of of ideal arching than at Niccolo, because Niccolo exaggerated that deep, long, wide uh, the wide channel. And therefore has nearly a slightly pinched arching, which you see in some Ruggieri's as well. Mm. And that influence you can clearly see also in, in Stradivari's idea. So there was something going on. But but Stradivari was the most consistent to, to bring that forward.
0: Yeah. So he took uh yeah, so it's a little bit of Magini that made Stradivari.
1: Yes, you could say that. So it's probably Margini, um that influenced that, and of course, the other big guys, Goneri del Gesù, was the other big and successful violin makers of all time. He also got influenced by that because you can see uh, he he made a wide breast. Uh, Stradivari didn't adopt that, you know. He he still saw an advantage in the arching, but he didn't want to deviate. Too far away from the established idea in Cremona. While Guglielmo del Gesù, he he did that already thirty years later. You know, thirty years later he started. Um, he was in an at a different time where the sons were already all rebels. You know, I mean, look at Stradivari's sons. I mean, what a disgrace <laughs> from Antonio's <laughs> perspective they must have been for him because how can the father achieve this level of workmanship and then you have those sons who just don't give a damn about precision
0: well it's the, you know it's the the father who makes the fortune and then the children who exactly. spend it they, they were that generation
1: yeah. and so <laughs> Jesus grew up in that generation but he he grew up in a family that was already much rougher in making you know the granaries feels andrea his father he was pretty rough, you know, so he didn't build like a Niccolò Marti in a sweet, beautiful, perfectly mannered and uh, disciplined way. He left the tool marks, he didn't always bother about the exact uh, precision.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this final episode on Gio Paolo Maggini. but stay with me for the next episode as I return to Cremona and I continue with the story of Niccolo Amati and his revolutionary practices in the workshop that would change the violin landscape forever. I'd like to thank my guests, Benjamin Hebert and Florian Leonard, for talking to me today. Please do leave a comment and rating. And if you would like to financially support the podcast, that would be amazing. You can go to Patreon forward slash The Violin Chronicles to do that. On social media, I have Instagram with the handle at The Violin Chronicles and Facebook is the violin chronicles podcast thank you for joining me and i hope you will tune in to the next episode of the violin chronicles